We turn this morning in God's Word to our study again of the book of 2 Corinthians. Of 2 Corinthians, this morning we'll consider verses 1 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is where we are up to. Last Lord's Day we had the wonderful opportunity to gather at the table to consider again the beautiful truth that God, that Paul presented to us, that all of God's promises find their yes in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Just a note, uh, tonight we'll continue our series of messages as well on man says, God says, particularly uh, focused tonight on some of the issues that are so present in our world and in our society um, as we seek to look at it under the subject of man as God's unique creation. So many of the issues that are present in our world and society come back to the false teaching uh, of man about who we are as individuals. So I'd uh, urge you to return for that study tonight. This morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let us hear the very word of God. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I has whom I have pained. And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. As far as the reading of God's word. Let's bow in prayer again. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day that you have brought us to your house to hear your word. We pray that you'll be with Pastor Bob as he helps to explain it to us, that we may learn from it, and that we may apply it to our lives. We ask this in your name alone. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at this passage sort of backwards. We're, we're going to start where, we, where the passage ends and then go back to the beginning. The first thing we're going to look at then is Satan's designs. That's where Paul ends this section, that we are not ignorant of Satan's designs. And so we probably ought to pause and ask, 
well, what are Satan's designs that we should not be ignorant of? And then we're going to go back in the second point and go back, well, what was God's purpose in all of this? Satan has a design, but so does God. God has a purpose in all that has happened in regards to that which has taken place in the Corinthian church and that then which comes to focus in our own hearts and our own lives as well. First of all, then, Satan's design. We're not ignorant of it. It'd be interesting to simply go around this morning and say, so what do you think Satan's design is? What do you think Satan's purposes are? And are we being outwitted by him because we do not know his design and we do not know his purpose? Well, we can probably attach this or or look at it in two parts. There, There is a general way in which we can seek to understand what Satan's design are. What, what is Satan's goals? What, what are his purposes? What are his designs? And probably we would put it into these categories. One, it's to rebel. It is to rebel. Satan's plan and purpose is always to be the opposition party. He is never the cooperative party. Now, it may appear like that. It may look like that on the surface. Even We are even reminded in Scripture that there are times when Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. He he may appear that way, but that's not his design. That's not his purpose. His purpose is never to cooperate. His purpose is never to obey. His purpose is never to glorify the Lord. So in a general sense, we can say Satan's design is always to be the rebellious one, to go against that which God would have us do. But we can also say that one of Satan's designs and purposes is always to confuse. Satan loves confusion. Satan loves disruption. Satan loves anarchy. Satan loves to have people not know what they are to do. Satan loves a state of flux. Satan works his best when people do not know the truth. When people's emotions are battling against their minds, when their minds are battling against their bodies, Satan loves that because it it makes us ripe for his temptations. So generally speaking, we can say Satan's design is to rebel. Secondly, we can say Satan's design or purpose is always to confuse. But specifically, in this passage, in this circumstance, in this situation that Paul is dealing with, Paul is dealing here, in this section, with the subject of church discipline. And what he's saying is this. Satan has a design and a purpose in all that he does. In the situation Paul is addressing, church discipline, 
Satan's design and purpose is this. No church discipline. That's what he'd want the church to do. He'd want the church to never discipline anyone. He'd want the elders to never open up the OPC book of church discipline. He'd want those pages ripped out. He'd want those pages hidden. He'd want those pages destroyed. He, He would delight in the fact that a church would never discipline any of its members for any reason and for any cause. Because if a church were to take that approach of no church discipline, you see, then they're not taking sin seriously. They're not dealing with sinful practice. They're not dealing with a sinful lifestyle. And you see, we know from Christ himself and from God's own word that a little leaven leavens a whole lump. So if a little sin can be left to go, within the church, and not discipline, Satan's design and purpose is, I can grow that sin. I can grow it. I can make it indeed into an epidemic. If that particular sin is not disciplined when it's so obvious in the church that that is a sin that ought to be disciplined. It's widely known. It's public. People see it. It's talked about. If I can get the church to look away from that public sin, Satan's design and purpose is, oh, can I build? I can build upon that. I can take that sin and I can multiply it into all sorts of ways and people will come up with all sorts of inventive ways to, to come off from that sin and sin will blossom, sin will grow. Oh, what a delight! A church full of people rebelling against God. His plan is purpose. But there is a second half to it. And that's excessive church discipline. If if Satan cannot get the church to look away from sin, then maybe Satan's design and purpose is to be excessive in it, to be overbearing in it. Perhaps to discipline where where perhaps discipline isn't called for. Or to be so harsh, to be so difficult, to be so hard and cold in the practice of church discipline that there is no longer any grace. That when church discipline has been used, and this is what Paul is focusing on in particular, that when church discipline has been used rightly, appropriately, for a sin that that the elders needed to discipline, that when that person repents, which is the goal of all discipline, which is the goal of church discipline, then discipline people to get them out of the church. We discipline people to get them back into church, to get them back into fellowship, to get them back into that relationship with Christ. So you've disciplined an individual. Maybe you suspended their membership. Maybe you 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 remove them. Maybe you 
You excommunicated them. Maybe you did what the Corinthians did in handing the man over to Satan. An excommunication. And and it works. The person feels the weight of that. And they recognize their sin and they come back and they say, I was wrong, I was forgiven. Ah, how does Satan then work? No! No, you can't come back in. No, what you did was so grievous. No, we never want you back. We, 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 there is no way possible you could ever enter this church again and become a member. No, out, out, out forever. Oh, Satan delights in that. Why? Because there's no grace. There's no grace. If he can get a church to be a church where there is no grace practiced, oh, Oh, this is his design. This this would fit his purposes. This would fit his plan. To have a place so hardened that when people actually confess their sin, when people acknowledge their sin, when people repent of their sin, when people turn of their sin, no forgiveness is granted. No grace is given. What does that do? Become known as a church where there's no grace. You become known as a church where there is no forgiveness. You become known as a church where there is no love. You become known as a church where there is no compassion. What happens? How many people you think off the street are going to want to wander into that? How many people are going to be drawn, as we're going to find out next week, to the aroma of Christ? That's a stench. That stinks. That's a horrid smell. People are going to be repelled by it. They're not going to be drawn to it. So here's Satan's purpose and design. One, specifically as we're dealing with it in chapter 2. Either no church discipline, then sin runs rampant and Satan wins. At least he claims victory. Or... Forgiveness is not granted, grace is not shown, love is not demonstrated, people stay away from the church. Satan's plan, Satan's design. Paul says, we are not ignorant of his design. We're not to be ignorant of that. We should know what is going on. So we're not outwitted by Satan. We're not outwitted by some form of compassion that says, oh, let's not take sin seriously. Nor are we outwitted by, oh, sin is so powerful, there is no means that it can ever be forgiven. And grace is outdone. We shouldn't be outwitted by Satan. So with that as the design, let's go back now to the passage. Let's go back to the rest of the passage that we read, the first ten verses, and look at, well, what is God's purpose? Well, Paul, in in this section, is dealing with a particular case. You might have picked up on that. He's talking about this pain and the visit, and he's talking about what he's written, and he's talking about an individual, a certain individual, a male individual. Because the pronoun he is used throughout. 
You say, well, what, yeah, what exactly is Paul referring to? What is the case that Paul is talking about? It's that case, if you go back in your scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the situation that Paul is now addressing. You say, what was in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Remember, this is the situation where there was this individual within the church who was living in a relationship, physical relationship, with his stepmother. And the church was going, see, what wonderful tolerant people we are. We even allow this in our church. Paul took him to task. What are you doing? That's what he's writing about. That's why Paul writes about the pain. Paul's like, I can't believe this. This is a church where I was. This is a church where I preached. And, and you're a lot. No, this is not what you are to do. This is not a sign of compassion. This is not a sign of Christian love. What is happening is public sin and it needs to be dealt with. So Paul took them to task over that. Now remember, 2 Corinthians is written a year later. During the course of that year, there have been others who have visited this Corinthian church and have come back and told Paul what's going on. Some of those reports were heartbreaking to Paul. Some of those reports were were lies being spewed at Paul over excessive discipline, over the cold-heartedness. And and the church began to to have all sorts of tumults. and, And Paul's going, oh no, this is the design of Satan. So there was pain. Pain caused to Paul. But Paul in the text tells us that's nothing compared to the pain that was in your church. Yes, I was hurt by by the fact of you allowed this situation to exist within the church and you you weren't disciplining this man. As, as, As you remember, Paul said, turn him over to Satan. Hand him over. Vote him out. You don't need this in the church. Paul says, I was hurt by the way you responded to me personally about that. But he says, that's nothing compared to the pain that was going on within the church. That which Satan was attempting to do in this case. How Satan's design was to disrupt the fellowship and the peace of the church. But there was a result. Because Paul has also received word over the course of this time that the man actually repented. They did what Paul told them to do. They practiced church discipline. They turned the man over to Satan. They excommunicated this individual who was involved in this public scandalous sin. They turned him over. And over the course of this year, between when he wrote 1 Corinthians and now when he's writing 2 Corinthians, 
The Holy Spirit has gripped this man, convicted the man of his sin. He has repented of his sin. And now the church is, what do we do? This is what you told us to do. How now do we respond to this repentant sinner? Here's where Paul talks about forgiveness. Pick it up with me here, back here in 2 Corinthians again, chapter 2. Verse 7. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. In this situation, with this repentant individual, in spite of the pain he has caused, not only Paul personally, but also the church, the divisiveness that that this situation caused. Paul says, now that he has turned, now that he has repented, and desires to be part of this fellowship again there in Corinth, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. This man who caused so many problems? Yes. This man who who was involved in this public scandal? What if everybody doesn't know he's repented? Forgive him. Forgive him. Not for you to deal with. The responsibility you as the church have, Paul says, is you are to forgive him and you are to comfort him. Else he may be overcome by excessive sorrow. What an interesting expression. Do you ever think of that? That it's possible to be excessively sorrowful about your sin? Ever think it's possible to be excessively sorrowful about repenting of your sin? Paul says it is because of the reaction of other believers. Imagine, imagine, my friends, if this were you or I, to have committed so horrible of a sin that the rest of your brothers and sisters here in Christ, after we had excommunicated you, and you were to come back and to say, I was wrong, it was a sin against God, it was a sin against Christ, it was a sin against the Holy Spirit, it was a sin against the church, I am sorry, and I repent of it. I turn from it. That the rest of the congregation would say, tough luck, buddy, you're not welcome here. Get out of here. Doors are barred. We're going to post the deacons at the door so you can't get in on Sunday. You cannot be part of our fellowship anymore, you scumbag. Look at the excessive sorrow. Would that not work to Satan's design? Would that not follow Satan's purposes? 
Because what is excessive sorrow? What Paul means by that is this. It's a denial of forgiveness. It's a denial of grace. And it cuts the heart out of individuals. It cuts the heart out of people. It cuts the passion out of people. Paul says, no, no. You you should rather turn to forgive. Comfort this one. We don't want it to turn into a case of excessive sorrow. That's not right. Proper sorrow. Don't go beyond God's grace. Don't let your sorrow take you beyond forgiveness. Don't let your sorrow take you beyond God's mercy. See, and we can do that, can't we? We can do that when we hold against ourselves that which God no longer holds against us. That which Christ paid for with His body and with His blood, we still hold against ourselves or hold against another person. And God says, no, I've granted forgiveness. I've granted mercy. I've granted pardon. But we withhold that from our, in our own lives. And we deny the fact that God could indeed pardon such an individual. We go beyond grace. And hold somebody accountable for something that God no longer even sees. Because the blood of Christ covers that sin. See, in this situation where Paul is calling for them to forgive, Paul is talking about his own forgiveness and the forgiveness of the church. See, he's thinking about his own situation, our own situation. Here you have a case of this man. Okay, that's the case. But in order to judge the case, in order to think about the situation of the forgiveness that ought to be granted to this man, you got to step back and look at yourself. And you got to understand that the only reason you are forgiven, the only reason I am forgiven, is because of grace. Grace alone to me can pardon speak. It's only by God's grace. It's not I earned it. It's not even because I repented. It's because of God's grace. It's not because I've done X, 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 and X, and X that God says, okay, now I'll finally forgive you. Forgiveness comes out of grace. That's where it emerges from. My repentance, my turning from sin, your turning from sin, comes only as a result of the fact that God is graceful to us first. That's what turns us. It's not that we turn from our sin and then God gives grace. It's God gives grace. And that's what causes us to turn from sin. And we need to remember that, not only for ourselves, but as we deal with others. Grace comes first. And secondly comes Christ. 
That forgiveness, that grace is possible only because of Christ. Only because Christ took upon Himself my sin, your sin, fully, completely, whole, total. That's where we were at at the table last Lord's Day. All God's promises of forgiven are Forgiveness, our yes in Christ. As I eat, as I drink, I am reminded, yes in Christ. Yes what? Yes, I'm forgiven. Fully, wholly, completely. I am justified. All my sin is wiped away. God sees it no more. I stand before Him righteous, holy, clothed in Christ. Robes of righteousness. I didn't earn forgiveness. I didn't deserve forgiveness. Nor did you. Nor did the man of 1 Corinthians 5. God was gracious in that Christ gave Himself for that man, for this man, for you. So you see, we have to understand the cost of that. Paul understands that. Is is it costly to forgive? Of course it is. But he says, forgiveness is cheap. You've got to swallow a lot. To be a forgiving person. Think of God. Think of all that God has to put up with. But He so loved you, He so loved me, that He sent His Son to give his life as a ransom to bear hell to bear forsakenness so that we later on in that creed can say and I believe in the forgiveness of sins is it cheap? no it's never cheap it's never easy been forgiven. You've been forgiven. And we need to constantly remember the cost of that forgiveness. But when it comes to forgiveness, not only do we need to remember our condition, we also have to remember our responsibility. Turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 6. First of all, in Matthew 6, I want you to note Jesus' teaching. Matthew 6. Pick it up at verse 5. 
Matthew 6, 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want you to note the next two verses. The only part of the prayer that Jesus looks at and says, I think I need to, unders- I need to underscore this. I need to teach this. In other words, I think what, he's, what, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, it's pretty self-explanatory what you're praying, but let me explain to you this portion. 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's not the word of some Reformed theologian. That's not the words of some Reformed doctrine statement. That's the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Powerful. Powerful. Definitive. Clear. It's not unclear, is it? Our responsibility is to forgive As we have been forgiven. Go with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Galatians. Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. This is the way of life. This is the new life. This is how we are to live as Christians, as those who have experienced grace, as those who know Christ's love, of those who are aware of the cost for their sins. This is the new way of life. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Do not be angry, and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ 
forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you. So, forgive one another. I want you to note that that section after grieving the Holy Spirit begins with bitterness. And if you want, if you're used to writing in your Bibles or taking notes, here's a note to make. A bitter person is not a forgiving person. And a forgiving person is not a bitter person. Bitterness is the result of not having a heart of forgiveness. Of not being able to let it go. Now, the question sometimes comes when you deal with this subject is, must I forgive if the person hasn't asked for forgiveness? Well, I could give you simply the practical of, I don't think I confess every single sin to God that I committed. But I am forgiven of every single sin. So we could give that perhaps theological answer. But let me give you the practical. Maybe parsing all of the verbs of various texts, you could say, well, maybe there are some cases when forgiveness, maybe legally, from a legal aspect, biblically, I don't have to forgive. But practically, if you don't, bitterness is going to build up. When we don't forgive, bitterness comes in. And the remedy to bitterness is forgiveness. That's just the new life. This is how we are called to live. Not under law, we're under grace. Does that mean the law is null and void? No. It just means we, we, if we become overly insistent on this step and this step and this step, and if those steps aren't, then I'm not going to grant forgiveness. Man, I'd urge you, never pray the Lord's Prayer. Because if that's what you're demanding of others, you're saying, that's what I have to do in order to be forgiven by God. My sin was purchased and paid for, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Fully, totally, completely, past, present, and even future. What that ought to do is motivate me to live this new life. Cause of grace, because I've been forgiven. Shouldn't want to be a bitter person. I had a desire to have in my heart Christ-like forgiveness. Go to one more. Book of Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. 
So we have Jesus teaching, tells us about our responsibility. We have the new life, that tells us about our responsibility. Look at Colossians chapter 3. We're going to go to verse 12. Put on that as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also your ESV tell you must forgive. This is not an option for us as believers. This is not a well, in some circumstances. This is a must. We must be forgiving people. Paul, what are we supposed to do with this guy? We put him out of the church. We excommunicated him. We did what you said. We handed him over to Satan. But now the guy's at the door as a repentant individual. What are we supposed to do? Forgive him. Comfort him. We don't want him to get in excessive sorrow. We don't want anyone to not walk through the doors of this church because they think they will find people who will not grant forgiveness to their repentance. The question is, my friends, how many people do we drive away from Christ because of our hardness, because of our bitterness, because of our having an unforgiving attitude. I know there's all sorts of issues. There's all sorts of things under the surface of this. But here stands the teaching. We must, by very nature of being a Christian, by very nature of those who have experienced grace. By the very nature of those who know the love of Christ. And who know the cost of that. Those who know they stand before God justified. Not because of anything that they have ever done. Because of that, we must forgive. May God be blessed. May God be praised. May God be honored by our forgiveness as a church, as individuals. And God's people say, Lord, your son taught us to pray. 
in the words that we now pray together, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.